I'm honored tonight to be able to introduce our speaker for this year's women's retreat, Amy Gannett. When I knew her, Amy Gilbaugh studied biblical exposition and women's ministry at Moody Bible Institute, where she was my RA for a year while we were there. Um, she then went on to complete her master's at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where she met her husband, Austin. After seminary, Amy and Austin relocated to Kinston, North Carolina, where um, Austin is the pastor of church planting and early career at Grace Fellowship Church. Amy travels to give take group seminars like these to equip local churches to study and teach the Bible. She also develops Bible studies called The Rooted Home for Individual Study, helping encourage women to engage with theology and study God's word. She currently has studies on Lent and Advent, among many others. She writes faithfully on her blog, usually very practical and helpful tips for living as Christians, particularly as faithful Christian women, and also helpful tips for studying scripture. Her writing has also been featured on various other blogs, such as the Gospel Coalition, Relevant Magazine, Christian Women Magazine, and Gospel Taboo. Austin and Amy are currently in transition. They are planting a church with Trinity Church Greenville in Greenville, North Carolina. Please join me in welcoming Amy Gannett. Well, that was one of the sweetest introductions that I've had at um, a church in a while. It's so fun to be here. Um, with Brian and Emily. It was so fun to hear from Brian um, not too long ago when he reached out about um, your church hosting this seminar. Um, and I've told a couple people here, it is doing my heart such good to see former classmates of mine doing ministry in um, the sort of daily, ordinary way. Um, I, was, I was telling a couple people, sometimes when you come from seminary, and Brian and Emily, maybe you've experienced this too, I feel like the stories that hit my Facebook feed are stories about people um, stepping down from ministry or people that are leaving their churches and really hard situations or people coming off the mission field or, um, you know, walking away from the faith. I feel like that's the, you know, 0.2%, but those are the stories you hear. So then to reconnect with classmates who are just doing faithful ministry in the local church just does my heart such good um, because this is what we all hoped to do. This is what we were all um, praying about and trusting the Lord with, and so it has just been so fun to reconnect. Um, like Emily said, my name's Amy. Um, I have a real passion for teaching women to study and use the scriptures. Um, the Bible has been such a big part of how I grew in knowing God, and I'm sure that's many of our stories. Um, it's the place where I learned to not only know God, but my heart was warmed to worship him as well. And so Studying the scriptures has been something that um, at first was super intimidating to me. And after Bible school and then I went on to go to seminary, I just got to the place where I realized you just shouldn't have to go to Bible school to learn how to study the scriptures. There are just so many practical things that we can do to help ourselves dig into the word, understand what it means in its original context, um, and to use those to share the good news of the gospel with other people. So I am thrilled to be with you um, here tonight and then tomorrow. I'm really looking forward to our time together. Um, before we dive in, I'll kind of give you a map of where we're going, and then I'll pray before we do so. Um, so here's kind of the overview of what we're looking at. I want to help us understand some simple tools. Basically, why should we study the Bible? Why should we be students of the Word? What difference does that make in our lives? We all go to church. 
We all are maybe a part of a Bible study. So why do we need any more tools than that? If we have great pastors like Brian, if we have people expositing the scriptures for us, why do we need to be students of the word ourselves? So we're going to start there and answer this question of why. What is, what is the big deal? Why is this so important for us? And why does the word call us so clearly to be women rooted in the word of God? And then we're going to basically think of filling your toolbox. What I want to do is give you some practical tools that you can take and help you study the scriptures. Some tools that you can put in your toolbox that say, when you approach a text that you don't understand, you have a method so that you can get to a place of understanding it. And then we're going to talk about why the word calls us to be evangelists, to share the good news of the gospel with others. How do we use what we've learned to share the gospel with others? How do we teach others what the word says? How do we understand it ourselves, but then also explain it in simple terms that others can grasp as well as we seek to be women who bring our neighbors and friends and families along in understanding who Jesus is? So that is where we're headed throughout this weekend. We're going to have some practical tools for all of these things. Uh, But tonight we're going to hear a call from God's word to be women of the word, to be women who dig deep roots down into the fertile soil of God's word and plant our lives there. And so we're going to look at that call from God's word tonight together. And before we do, will you bow in prayer with me? I'd love to open us in a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We know that Um, like we have sung, it is our life. Your word is life to us, and we know that it points us to Christ, who is our only hope. He is our joy. He is our life. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would open your word to us, open our eyes to see what it says, open our hearts to understand what you would have us learn um, and take away from this text tonight, Lord. Convict us where we need convicting. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Spur us on where we need to be moved forward in your plan. But, Lord, we ask that you would be present with us, Lord. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Like Emily said, um, I went to school in, like Emily and Brian, in the best city in the entire world, which is Chicago. (laughs) I have visited other big cities, but they all pale in comparison. Chicago is this grand city, at least for three months of the year when it is not snowing. And it is a delight. But let me tell you my favorite thing about living in Chicago. It is for all, compared to all cities, so don't compare it to like your, you know, don't compare it to like Eastern North Carolina, okay? But compared to most major cities like New York and LA and um, San Fran, but compared to major cities, it is wildly affordable. So when I graduated from college, I was pretty determined that I wanted to stay in Chicago. I loved the art Um, Institute. I loved the different neighborhoods and eating my way through all those different neighborhoods and eating cuisine from all over the world. I loved the city, and so I was determined to stay. And Chicago is affordable enough that a little twerp like me, you know, 22 years old, who's just a nanny, can afford beautiful apartments that we do not deserve and we do not know how to appreciate at the time. But I remember graduating, and I had gotten this little nanny job, and I was going to stay in the city. I was a big girl, and I went to look for my first apartment, and I found this beautiful apartment that had hardwood floors that were original, and it had crown molding and this big bay window that looked over um, the local, the neighborhood square, and I was just 
in heaven. And I was mentally, you know, arranging where all my Craigslist furniture was going to go. You know, I had like one little bistro table, and I had one little baby couch and a pull-out sofa. And I was mentally arranging this apartment that I was so thrilled um, to live in. I had done a first showing, and I was there for um, a second showing and to sign the leasing agreement. And as I was sort of mentally placing, you know, where my four pieces of furniture and my six belongings were going to go in this little apartment, the landlord put in front of me the leasing agreement. And, you know, I sort of um, dreamily read through it, (laughs) you know, 22 years old. It was my first lease agreement. I didn't know what was waiting for me on the last page of that lease agreement. There was a signature line and underneath that, underneath the signature line that had a very affordable rent. It had, you know, a nine month lease term. So it was short. It felt really doable. But underneath that signature line were the rental requirements. The rental requirements laid out what was expected of a tenant what you were expected to make each month, four times the amount of rent in proven monthly income. Proven monthly income is code for not a nanny paid in cash. (laughs) It required that you have a credit score of 640 or higher, not a student who made her way through college paying for said college with said cash from said nanny job. And I was pulled out of my mental dreamland as I looked at that, and all of a sudden my heart sunk. Here was this landlord, here for a second showing. I was here to sign the papers, y'all, and I suddenly realized I am not qualified. I am not qualified. This beautiful apartment, this place I was going to live, this new life I was going to have, I was not qualified. Now, you and I are going to look at a text here in just a minute, and it is going to lay out for us the calling of God's word to be women who root our lives on only one source, and that is the word of God. And it is going to describe for us in illustration and in some detail what that life looks like. What is this call to be rooted in God's word? What does it mean for us? What does it look like for the substance of our lives? And you and I are going to have that same experience I had as I sat at that little table looking over these rental requirements. We're going to read this and think, oh my word, I am not qualified. We're going to read this description of the person. What does their life look like if they root their lives in the word? We're going to read this description, and it's going to be this high, and we're going to try to measure ourselves, and we're going to go, how do I tell others that I don't live up to that? I am not qualified. I don't match this description that's laid out here. And what am I going to do? We're going to have that same sinking feeling that I felt in that apartment where I thought, how do I even tell this landlord that I can't sign the papers because I don't measure up. But I want you to hang on, okay? Hang on, because that story isn't over yet. So we're going to dive in and we're going to circle back. Let's look together at Psalm chapter 1. We're going to look at Psalm chapter 1 tonight as we consider the call on our lives to be women rooted in the Word of God. Psalm chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you something specific about the book of Psalms and the place Psalm 1 has in the Psalter. 
So the Psalms were not written chronologically like most of the other books of the Bible. And we'll look at this a little bit tomorrow because we're going to look at different genres and how the different books were assembled. But it's not written from Psalm 1 to the end. It's not written chronologically. But they were each psalms of praise or hymns of praise that were written by various authors. And then they were compiled. They were bound together and they were to be the nation of Israel's hymnal. It was the guidebook, the worship manual for the people of God. And Psalm 1 wasn't written first, but it was placed at the precipice. It was placed at the very beginning for a specific reason. It was supposed to outline, to lay out the life of the person who followed that Psalter. So it's like the book opens with this introduction as if to say, if you follow this book of worship, this hymnal for God's people, if you follow this, this is what your life is going to look like. Here's an illustration of the ideal Israelite, the person who follows this worship manual through to the end. This is what their life is going to look like. So Psalm 1 is literally setting the stage for the true worshiper, the ideal Israelite. What does it look like? Well, that's what they want to tell us in Psalm chapter 1. If you are taking notes in your workshop materials, there's a place for general session one. That's what we're going to look like. There's a spot that says Psalm 1, and you're welcome to take notes there. So while you're flipping there, we're going to take a look at Psalm 1. Let's read that together. Look with me in verse 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The psalm breaks out by saying that the person who follows this book of worship, the person who is the ideal Israelite or this true worshiper, is first of all blessed. He's first of all blessed. And another word for the Hebrew word here is happy. The person who follows this book of worship is blessed in what he does. And the psalm is going to go on to tell us, first, what he does not do, and second, what he does do. So let's look first at the things that he does not do. What does the person of worship, what does the true Israelite refrain from? First, it tells us that he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners, and he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. He first doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. We have a mental image of what this looks like. The wicked are those who oppose the things of God. And you know what? He is not getting his advice from such people. He's not gaining counsel from those who oppose the things of God. When he has a problem in his life, when this person has a question about what to do next, how do I navigate this situation, what do I do with my family, what does this look like in my worship, Well, this person is not going to those who oppose the things of God, not gleaning counsel from those who do not love the law of God. The person of worship does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The ideal Israelite also doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He does not stand in the way of sinners. Sinners is similar to the wicked. It's somebody who has opposed the things of God in their behavior. So we see a little bit of a progression here. It's not just somebody who is opposed to the things of God intellectually, but somebody who is opposed to the things of God in their behavior. And this person isn't hanging around there. 
This person isn't saying, let me adopt some of these life practices. It's not finding its um, truest community. It's not finding its truest identity in those who oppose the things of God. The person of worship, the ideal Israelite, does not stand in the way of sinners. And lastly, the text tells us that he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Scoffers. It's not a word we use very often, is it? Scoffers. We get a further progression. First we have the wicked, then we have the sinners, now we have the scoffers, those who openly mock the things of God, who think they're just garbage for the foolish, the scoffers, the person of worship, the true Israelite, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. To sit in the seat of someone is to take up their identity and take up their posture. So this ideal Israelite does not adopt the practices of those who openly mock God. He doesn't um, take counsel, he doesn't stand, and he doesn't adopt the practices. Do you see how the text is giving us a downward progression? Do you see this? The person is first um, walking in counsel and then standing and then sitting The text is, because it's a poem, it's reminding us of the downward progression of those who do not seek after the things of God. First, walking in counsel that is opposed to the things of God. Let's be honest, gals, that's real easy to do. We're going to just get a little advice from the friend who doesn't love the Lord and who actually thinks that maybe my faith is this thing kind of holding me back. We're not going to walk in the counsel of those who oppose the things of God or stand in the way of sinners. You know, my coworkers, they are dishonest with my boss, and it really has worked out for them. They are advancing in their careers. They're doing things that I don't get away with, and so I might adopt some of their practices. No, that's another progression downward in the way of those who oppose the things of God, and then taking up the residence of those who openly mock God. We don't want to do that. The ideal Israelite, the true worshiper, is not doing these things. He's resisting the downward spiral of opposing God. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, and does not sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on God's law he meditates day and night. We're not just talking about the things the ideal Israelite does not do. We're talking about the things that now do occupy his time. The things that are a part of his regular routine. His delight, it tells us, is in the law of the Lord. The source of his joy, the source of his contentment, the source of his enthusiasm is none other than the word of God. In view here for the Israelites is this book of worship. This hymnal, this hymn manual, and the Torah, which contained God's law. God's law in the Old Testament was not just meant to give God's people a whole bunch of rules to follow, but it was an expression of his character. God called them to not murder because he created man in his image. He says this very clearly and very openly. He says, you're not to kill another image bearer. That's different than killing animals. Because man is made in the image of God, and that reflects God's character to value life, reflects the very character of God. We're not to lie. The Israelites were not to lie and bear false witness because God was a God of truth. These weren't just arbitrary rules that God gave them, but it was a reflection of his very character, an invitation to God's people to be like him. It was God making his character accessible to his people. 
And the ideal Israelite finds great delight in this law because it tells him all about who his God is. He doesn't resist the rules and say, fine, I'll just do the bare minimum because I just have to follow the rules. I'm just going to jump through these hoops. No, he says, I take great delight in the law of God because that is a reflection of my God's character. He delights in the law of God. And on his word, he meditates day and night. Day and night, the word of God is running through his mind. Now, if you are prone to a little bit of legalism like me, I will read this and I think, okay, I'm going to tick that box. I'm going to set up a time in the day and a time in the night. I'll meditate on God's word and then I can check that box. But that's not what's in view here. This structure here in the Hebrew, in this Hebrew poem, this psalm, is called an inclusio. It's an inclusio, and it's taking two unlike things and putting them together to show the sum of the things or the difference or the gap between the two things. An inclusio is taking two unlike things to show the breadth of it. So it's sort of like when we say, God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. What we're not saying is that God has like picked you up and put you in some certain place in the east and picked up your sins and put them in some certain place in the west. We're not, we're not getting legalistic with this, right? It's to show the vastness of the two. God has removed our sins from us as far as we can ever imagine. The east is from the west as far as we could ever measure that, which we can't. That's how far he's removed our sins from us. And so the psalm here is reminding us the man of worship, the woman of worship, the ideal Israelite is worshiping God and dwelling on his law all the time. It's not just a certain time during the day. It's not just a certain time during the night. But this person can't stop his mind from mulling over the scriptures, from wondering about that verse, wondering about that psalm, wondering what that law, how it reflects God's character. This person is consumed with the word of God. It's always on their mind. It's always on their, in their thoughts. As they go to bed, they're wondering about the things of God. And as they get up in the morning, they're wondering about the things of God, mulling it over. The ideal Israelite here delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. So we've seen what the ideal Israelite does not do, and now we've seen what the ideal Israelite does do, and now we get an illustration. We get this word picture of what it looks like. What is this person's life like? I don't know if you're like me, but I love an illustration. It helps me fill it out. And we find it so frequently in the poems of the Old Testament, these illustrations that give us a better grasp of what it means, what we're reading. How do we understand this? Well, here is the illustration that we're given. In verse 3, the text tells us, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. My husband and I, immediately after seminary, we moved to Colorado for a couple of years, and we loved this little town that we were in. It's called Fort Collins, and if you've been there, you know why. Everything's local, and it's this changing town. It's always got this new life coming into it, and um, there were new restaurants opening all the time, and everything felt so fresh and new, and it was sort of a 
a town that had seen some um, a new influx of um, millennials. And so there were new like hipster coffee shops and new um, hipster coffee shops opening all the time. And so uh, we loved it. It was such a fun place um, for us to be in the early stages of our marriage. We just had a blast. Um, we lived in this little apartment complex where I loved our apartment, but the complex was always a little unsettling for me. I couldn't quite figure out um, what it was that just didn't feel homey. I didn't know if it was just that it was a huge complex or that it was new. I couldn't quite figure out what it was until I visited my family in Iowa. About six months into our time in Colorado, I visited my family in Iowa, and there I was, standing in my parents' backyard, bawling like a baby, looking at this great big oak tree. Because I realized in that moment that I missed a mature landscape. I missed being in a place that felt like home because it had big trees that I couldn't wrap my arms around. It had roots that went so deep that they popped up yards and yards from the trunk. They were like gnarled knuckles that would pop out of the ground. And they were so big, they had big branches. And I grew up in that backyard. Those trees raised me. I played in their shade. I climbed in their branches. And returning to that little apartment complex where all the trees had been freshly planted, and I could go like this, I suddenly knew, oh, that's what's missing. That's what's not feeling like home. I'm not used to these little baby saplings. I'm ready for big, big, giant oak trees. And that is the kind of tree that's in view here. This isn't a tree that's been transplanted into some HOA neighborhood to make it look more like home. This is a giant, aching oak tree. This is a tree that is established, it is decades old. And it is planted by streams of water. It has roots that go down that are always connected to its source of sustenance. It is a tree that is always going to be vibrant because it's always connected to its source. It's not trying to make it on its own in soil that it doesn't know. It is connected to its source. It draws life from the water. And it tells us this. It yields fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. This tree, because it is connected to its source, because it is connected to the water that gives it life, it is always bearing fruit. If it is in season for fruit, you're going to find it on its branches. Its leaves are not sickly. They are not getting eaten by worms. They are not getting attacked by bugs. They are healthy, vibrant they may change with the seasons, but just as they are supposed to. We're not going to find this tree uncharacteristically out of season dropping its leaves. No, it's healthy. It's vibrant. When the springtime comes, you're going to reach up and find that fruit. And when the fall comes, it's going to shed its leaves and do it all over again. It's healthy. It's established. And every time it's supposed to be bearing fruit, every season that's in season for fruit, you're going to find it there. This is the illustration of the tree, and then the text shifts its voice. Do you see this? It's telling us about the tree. It's planted by streams of water. It bears fruit. It doesn't lose its leaves. And in whatever he does, we're returning to the ideal Israelite. Whatever he does, he prospers. Now, in our circles of Christianity, when we hear prospers, we're like, 
don't talk about the prosperity gospel. We want to be really on, we want to be really careful that we don't give into that. Actually, this is a side note, but as I was leaving tonight, I told, I was putting my white jacket in my bag and my husband said, better not look like Benny Hinn. Yeah. <laughs> I like had my bags. I'm like on my way out and I'm hearing, don't look like Benny Hinn. <laughs> this is why we're married. Um, <laughs> we keep things a little spicy. Um, but we don't want, we don't want to wade into those waters of prosperity gospel because first of all, they're just not true and they do nobody any service. But so what do we do when the text actually says prospers? What do we do with this? What place does that have in our theology and understanding of the text? Well, the text is telling us something specific in whatever he does, he prospers. What do we know that he does? What do we know? He delights in the law of God. He meditates on it all the time. The word of God is always mulling over in his mind. And in doing that, we know that he is blessed. He prospers. That is going to bear fruit in his life. In what he does, he prospers. So we've seen what the person um, of faith, this true worshiper, this ideal Israelite does not do. We've seen what he does do. And we've seen this illustration of him being like a tree that's connected to its water source. It's always bearing fruit. And it does not, um, its leaves do not wither. And now we're going to give, we're given an illustration, a similar illustration of what the wicked are like. The text tells us in verse 4, what are the wicked like? Well, they are not like the ideal Israelite. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. When we were in Colorado, it was the first time that I had been up close and personal uh, with aspen trees. My husband and I love to go down and go to um, Breckenridge or Vail and drive some of those beautiful fall drives. And um, aspen trees are everywhere. They're gorgeous. And they have these white trunks. They're really skinny. And they have these white trunks. And every um, fall, they lose their bark. It peels off like paper. You may have seen them. Um, it peels off like paper. And it's this really thin, it looks like tissue paper. And in Breckenridge at the right season, if you go during gold rush, when you can see all the trees, the aspen trees turn yellow on the sides of the mountains, they'll be losing um, their white bark. And you'll see it kind of flitting along the road. This is a great mental image of what chaff is like. It has no weight and no substance. Compare this to the person um, who worships God, to the rootedness of a big oak tree. This is like, the wicked are like aspen bark that can't even hold their own place. They have no rootedness, no groundedness. They have no control whatsoever. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. And now we're given sort of the conclusion of the thing. What does this all mean? What's the summary of everything we've talked about here? The text, excuse me, the text tells us in verse 5, <clears throat> Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. <clears throat> For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Because of all of this, because of all that's in view, hold all of this in your mind and understand this. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. <clears throat> the text is taking the long view. It's looking forward to when Christ returns. When Christ returns and finally and fully establishes his kingdom, and there is a judgment. The wicked, who are like chaff of the wind drives away, they won't stand 
They won't be able to stand in the face of God and shake their finger and say, you should have done things differently. Those that scoffed in verse 1, they won't be scoffing. They won't be able to stand. They won't have rootedness then. No, they're like chaff. We've already seen they're like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. They will not hold up before God's character. And sinners won't be in the congregation of the righteous when all God's saints bow before him and sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Ah, the sinners, those who have openly mocked God, those who have been unrepentant throughout their lives, they will not be there. Why? For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This word knows here is more than intellectual assent or academic knowledge, but it's a word that indicates intimate knowledge, relational belonging. God intimately knows the way of the righteous. God knows his own. The person, the ideal Israelite, the true worshiper who is delighting in his word, it's not that he is just learning about God, but God knows him. God knows her. God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I don't know about you, but it's easy to read texts like this and get utterly overwhelmed. (laughs) It's so overwhelming to think that the call of God's word, the call to being a true worshiper, the call to being an ideal Israelite, is so high. I don't know about you, but I don't mull over the word of God day and night. It's not always on my mind. Have I delighted in God's word, in his commands that point me to his character? Or do I bristle when I'm reminded that I'm to give to local ministry? Do I bristle and think, I'll do it to jump through the hoop? Have I lived up to this? I want to say yes, but I have to say no. And I don't know about you, but I can go back to being that 22-year-old, looking at a leasing agreement, looking at the rental requirements, and realizing, I am not qualified. If this is the description of a true worshiper, count me out. I don't qualify. And some of us are going to feel that way over this weekend as we look at what it means to be a student of the word, some of the different tools that we might develop along the way to help us rightly divide the word of truth. Some of those tools we're going to look at and be like, I can't do that. You mean in my 15 minutes of peace and quiet before all the kids get up and they run through the living you mean I'm supposed to do what? Some of us are going to have that overwhelming feeling of, if this is what it takes, I just count me out. I just can't do it. It doesn't work with my lifestyle, or I'm not smart enough, or I don't have the time, or I don't have the energy. We're going to feel like, I just, I can't qualify. And as I sat in that seat looking at this list of rental requirements with tears pricking the corner of my eyes as I tried to figure out how I was going to tell this very nice landlord that she had wasted her time, that she should give it to somebody else, that the picture window would go to another person. She waved her hand in front of my face and said, don't worry about that, that's been taken care of. I was like, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know that I'm just a nanny? I was for a brief moment worried that she had misunderstood who I fundamentally was as a human being. That somehow she thought I had really great credit and a lot of money. But she went on to explain that before this second showing, before I signed my lease, my dad had called her and he had co-signed the lease. 
Don't we all just love dads? <laughs> My dad, who has excellent credit, who is a business owner, who has great savings, he had called and he had said, okay, I know my girl. She does not have the money that she thinks she has. Let me co-sign for this lease. And he had gone ahead and become a co-signer on the lease, which meant that because he qualified on my behalf, I got the apartment. My dad, with his credit, with his finances, he met the requirements on my behalf. I did not have to do that. He met the requirements on my behalf, and because he was qualified, I was qualified. And friends, when we look at this text, we look at this description of the ideal Israelite, we are meant to be pointed to none other than Jesus Christ, the only ideal Israelite, the only true worshiper that the entire canon of Scripture is flashing with bright arrows to the New Testament saying, he's coming, he's coming, and that he's here Jesus Christ is the only true worshiper. He is the only ideal Israelite. He is the only one who could fulfill the law of God and be the true worshiper that the book of Psalms anticipated. And because Jesus Christ walked this earth and died our death on the cross and rose again in our place, friends, we have been qualified Jesus Christ has qualified on our behalf. And when Jesus looks at those who have given their lives to Christ, who have surrendered to Christ as Lord, God looks at us and says, I see Jesus. And Jesus met the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus qualified on our behalf so that we did not have to. The line that we could not measure up to, Jesus did on our behalf. And so we can rest easy knowing that he was the man who the book of Psalms anticipated, that the book of Psalms pointed to, that the book of Psalms waited for. He is the tree that was planted by streams of water. He is the tree that bared fruit, whose leaf did not wither. He is the ideal Israelite, and he has qualified on our behalf. But my dad did not stop there though I kind of wish he had at the time. He did not stop there by just saying, I'm going to co-sign the lease. My dad did not let that be enough. But my dad took me under his wing, and he helped me learn what it would look like to be a person who qualifies for a lease like that. My dad said, okay, you're 22, and this is what you're going to need for your next apartment, first and last security deposit and first month's rent. Okay, you're going to need to start developing some credit you're going to need to put so much of your paycheck into savings each month. My dad brought me along into learning how to be a person who mirrored his own character. And that's what God wants to call you and I to. We don't come to study God's word. We don't come to learn how to be women who rightly divide the word of truth because we have to measure up to a requirement of scripture. We do not come to make ourselves right before God. If that was the case, we could all just quit. <laughs> we can all just give up and say we can't meet the righteous requirements of God's law. Somebody had to do that on our behalf, and that person was Jesus. But God does call us to become like him. It's an invitation extended to you and to I to be women who mirror the character of our God. So as we learn these tools this weekend, as we study God's word, as we learn to be women who rightly divide the word of truth and who know how to share it with confidence, 
let's remember that we don't come trying to prove ourselves to God. This is not about God being satisfied with you. This is not about you satisfying the requirements of God's law. But it's our response to his invitation to be like him, to grow in becoming like our heavenly father who has qualified on our behalf. Will you pray with me? Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word teaches us to be like you, but we thank you that you have met the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to die in our place and to meet the requirements of righteousness that you demanded in the Old Testament. Lord, teach us to be women after your own heart. Teach us to be women who love your word, who delight in it, who mirror your character as we seek to root ourselves in the word of God. We thank you with joy and gratitude in the name of Christ. Amen.